Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. This episode features a conversation between Dr. Chandra Balani and Dr. Erin M. Page about navigating the treatment of lung cancer patients in the COVID-19 environment. Dr. Bange is an oncology fellow of the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and the Hospital of University of Pennsylvania. I am Chandra Balani, professor of medicine at Penn State Cancer Institute and chief science officer of the IASLC. Welcome, Erin. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'd like to talk to you about the presentation on resources related to lung cancer in the COVID-19 environment that you have developed. It is an excellent presentation. Erin, why don't you tell the audience about yourself? Uh, Sure. So I am an oncology fellow at the, like you mentioned, the uh, Abramson Cancer Center, which is a part of the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Philadelphia. I am, you know, interested in thoracic oncology. And I don't know what else is even relevant as a first-year fellow. I feel like you are just a trainee. (laughs) Tell us what motivated you to choose oncology as a career. It really became obvious when, as a resident, first the unique relationships between oncologists and their patients. I don't think there's any specialty that has quite that unique intensity of a bond and therapeutic uh, relationship. And on top of that, what really fascinated me about oncology is that it really incorporated everything that you learned in, in medical school, all of those things that you, know, you joke that you'll never need to know, all those molecular pathways, head and neck anatomy, all of that is really crucial to delivering high quality cancer care. And you have to think about not only genetics, but also the social and emotional aspects of how a cancer diagnosis affects a patient to really be able to give the best care possible. So are you leaning towards becoming a thoracic oncologist or uh, you are going to pick up some other uh, area? So I'm just a first year fellow, so I don't want to put anything down in stone, but thoracic oncology has definitely uh, caught my attention in multiple ways. I think it's an exciting time to take care of thoracic oncology patients so much as being learned in terms of the molecular and unique subsets of these diseases. And we have more and more opportunities to really deliver patient-centered precision medicine-guided treatments. And our patients are doing better than they ever have before. And it really just was probably one of my most fun and exciting clinics that I was able to work in as a fellow. Great. I think that we are living in exciting times regarding uh, lung cancer per se, because we have adopted precision medicine, molecular markers, and now more recently immunotherapy. And patients have continued to do better as compared to what they used to do when I was a trainee, when there was no treatment for lung cancer. Yeah. And In addition, I think that the past few weeks have brought unprecedented challenges as we work towards prevention of the spread of COVID-19 and to prepare for patients who contract the virus. 
And your presentation actually is very interesting that you've laid down the resources related to lung cancer patients in this environment. So I would like to ask you that as COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted the world, the listeners want your perspective on the disease, its spread, including the biological implications and the clinical presentation. So why don't you just briefly elaborate on that? Yeah, of course. So as I think most people are aware at this point, the COVID-19 pandemic is a global problem. The COVID-19 is due to a virus, which has been named SARS-CoV-2. And it is a part of the coronavirus family. And historically, coronaviruses have been associated with more mild symptoms and a better symptom disease profile. But in the recent history, other viruses such as SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV have also emerged with a more severe phenotype. Initially, we saw that it spread between animals to animals, but now we know it spreads between humans. Presume that it mainly is spread through respiratory droplets and secretions that are released in the air when people talk or they cough, and also potentially through direct contact with items that these respiratory droplets may have landed onto. So door handles, tabletops, anything like that. And what is really unique about this virus is that there can be a large range of clinical symptoms and ranging from asymptomatic to very critically ill. And one of the unique parts about this virus that makes it so transmissible is that patients can shed the virus, have actually very high levels of virus detected in their respiratory secretions and oral secretions, but yet not have any symptoms. So I think this is one of the reasons why this virus has really you know, taken the world by storm is that patients who and people who otherwise don't know that they have the virus can be spreading it you know, without even having symptoms. In clinical practice, again, what we see is, you know, a range. We have the most common symptoms that have been reported are fever, fatigue, a dry cough, uh, myalgia, and dyspnea. But over time, we've also learned that there can be some other associated symptoms. There have been reports of patients having diarrhea and some GI symptoms prior to even obtaining a fever. Some patients can have loss of sense of smell or taste. And there have also been reports of neurologic symptoms on presentations. You know, again, the large breadth ranging from confusion to stroke and seizure. And I think what's important to as providers, when we think about COVID-19, it's we have to think about our patients' exposures. For us as oncologists, our patients are uniquely high risk for exposure to this virus, especially if they're engaging frequently with the healthcare system, coming to office appointments or getting labs checks, and then also thinking about their other symptoms. So in terms of what has been shown on our lab testing and our imaging testing is there are very commonly associated imaging findings. Patients tend to have ground glass opacities and they oftentimes can, are bilateral in both lungs, and they has been shown to have some progression over time. In terms of you know, lab values, 
there's not one unique lab profile that these patients tend to have. We've found associations with lymphopenia, so a reduction in the lymphocyte count. We've seen some patients with abnormalities in their liver enzymes. We have seen a, an increase in inflammatory markers, as well as markers of potential clotting, such as D-dimer and fibrinogen, so essentially break down products from clots. So, you know, at this moment, it's really unfortunate that we don't have, you know, this perfect, unique lab profile to really guide us. But I think for, especially for our cancer patients, we just have to have a very high clinical suspicion, especially with lung cancer patients, their chest imaging can be challenging due to the the cancer itself and also potential toxicities from the treatment they receive. So patients can have inflammation in the lungs that look very similar to COVID-19 in the setting of their immunotherapy treatments or their targeted therapy treatments. So I think it really is important for us to just have a high clinical suspicion and have a low threshold to think about COVID-19 testing for our patients and also ask them questions about their exposures and the symptoms that they have been having. So Erin, that's great. What we learned from the Italian study was that there were a high number of cancer patients who had contracted COVID. And you saw that they, about 20% of the patients who died from COVID-19 had cancer, and most of these patients had lung cancer. So why do you think the lung cancer patients have an increased tendency of developing complications from this virus? There's multiple reasons. I think, you know, one thing, the U paper that was published in JAMA Oncology highlighted that in their cohort that they analyzed, I think it was around 40% of patients weren't even on active treatment. So as I mentioned before, our cancer patients are at high risk of of exposure primarily. So frequently getting engaging in the healthcare system, may it be lab checks, imaging checks, coming in for office appointments, hospitalizations for other reasons, having to go into the clinic for those who are getting active treatment. I think also it's seen that COVID-19, particularly severity of disease is associated with age, other comorbidities such as diabetes, hypertension, Also, there is some correlation of more severe disease in patients who have prior smoking history. And I think our lung cancer patients just have this, you know, unique, perfect storm of being more associated to have all of those factors. Our patients tend to be older. They tend to be active smokers or prior smokers. And due to their age, they also are more likely to have other comorbidities such as hypertension and diabetes. So I think our population is just uniquely vulnerable during this time which is also another reason why I think we just have to be more diligent about, you know, looking out for COVID and thinking about whether or not the symptoms that our patients are coming in with could be a reflection of infection with SARS-CoV-2. The treating MDs uh, probably have to make adjustments in the treatment of their lung cancer patients during this uh, COVID pandemic. Are you seeing patterns of key guidance from the published literature that these community oncologists have adopted during this period? Yes, there's definitely some themes that have stood out. So I think oncologists have really been challenged to transform how they deliver cancer care. They understand the importance of continuing to give their patients high quality care, but also the importance of minimizing risk to both exposure and also risk any treatment may pose on 
patients. So we all remain focused on ensuring the safety and well-being of our workforce, students, patients, and the community. And I think that we are marching ahead. We have made key adjustments. I think this COVID-19 pandemic has really challenged oncologists to transform how they deliver care, focusing on the critical need to deliver, continue to deliver important cancer care, but also trying to minimize the risk for unnecessary exposure, as well as the potential increased risk that treatment may pose at this time. And I've noticed three main themes in terms of recommendations that have been coming out. The first theme is the the critical need for prevention, both in terms of protecting our healthcare workers, but also our, our vulnerable patients. And the guidelines and the recommendations highlight a need for first diligent hand hygiene and extensive availability and proper use of protective equipment based on the CDC guidelines that have been published. You know, also the critical need to minimize any unnecessary exposure. So using telemedicine whenever possible, thinking about using home healthcare. So infusion at home, lab checks at home, whenever it's safe and appropriate. And also thinking about transitioning to oral regimens to minimize patients going in. So for example, for our patients who have extensive stage small cell lung cancer, thinking about using oral atopicide rather than infusional atopicide to just you know, minimize them having to come in. And the need to screen patients and providers for high-risk exposures or symptoms, and also doing things like temperature checks when patients and providers come in to try to identify who could be infected. And for the patients who are identified to be infected or at high risk for infection, it's critical to try to to separate them and think about how we structure our waiting rooms and our clinics to minimize any unnecessary exposures. The, The second theme that I've noticed is the need to minimize harm. So as we've mentioned before, it's essential that we continue to deliver cancer care, but how can we do it in the safest way possible? The NCCN has put out new guidelines liberalizing the recommendations for growth factor to expand to intermediate risk regimens. And BREC guidelines have come out encouraging thinking about spacing regimens. So for example, our patients who are on who are stably on immunotherapy, especially patients who have been on for greater than six months, thinking about going to a Q4 uh, week dosing rather than a Q3 week dosing. Also thinking about for patients who are stably on maintenance therapies to hold uh, treatment and you know and monitor to try to minimize risk. I think it's you know also has been highlighted the important need to aggressively anticipate symptom management. So for our patients who are getting chemo and treatment to think about what medications can we provide at home for them for you know, nausea, pain, whatever it may be, so that they can get those controlled at home without having to engage within the clinic or go to the emergency department. And then the last big bucket that really has stood out to me is communication. And this has you know pretty broad reaching. So really critical to be actively communicating with our patients, both to educate them about COVID-19 and how to protect themselves, but also this is a a unique time for them and there's going to be increased emotional needs and stresses that are associated with being a cancer patient at this time. So 
I think it's really important for us and the guidelines highlight this as well to engage with patients, answer questions, offer support, give them encouragement and lay out, you know, a plan in terms of how, how their cancer treatment is, is going to look going forward. I think it's important to have early goals of care discussions in terms of having it documented in the chart, what are important to patients, who are their important contacts so that it's easy to reference for if, God forbid, a patient is unable to communicate for themselves if they become ill. And then also, it's really critical for us to communicate with other teams, our inpatient colleagues, our ED colleagues, to you know, give them information about our patients, their unique clinical scenario, what to think about in terms of their treatment and their cancer. And finally, I think this is a it's a critical time for multidisciplinary management. One of the best things I think about thoracic oncology is how multidisciplinary it is, but now more than ever, just working with our radiation oncology colleagues and our surgical colleagues to come up with the safest plans for our patients, especially those who have limited stage disease or who have um, locally advanced disease and think creatively in terms of how to think about chemo radiation and, and surgery for our patients. That was impressive, Erin. I think that the oncologists are probably going to get a lot out of your answers to these questions and uh, the guidance that they will get from uh, what you have just described when they treat their patients. So let's jump to lung cancer patients who actually are infected with COVID-19. Would you change treatment for them or how would you, would you pause their treatment at this point in time? I think that's a, it's a challenging question because Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of hard information to go off of in terms of how unique regimens affect the clinical course of COVID-19. There have been some small retrospective reviews that have been published. There was one in Lancet Oncology, another in the Annals of Oncology that describes small cohorts of patients. And these studies did highlight that patients who had recent treatment within two to four weeks had worse outcomes and were at a higher risk of having worse outcomes and more severe disease than their patients who had not received more recent treatment. There's also been, you know, a handful of case reports that have been published, a couple in the Journal of Thoracic of Oncology. One highlighted a EGFR mutant patient with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer who, while requiring hospitalization, was never developed critical disease and was he safely maintained on his osimertinib and discharge. There was another one looking at a patient who had been maintained on nivolumab for years for his metastatic non-small cell lung cancer and unfortunately had very severe COVID-19 infection and unfortunately passed away from the illness. I think at this time, there's information that's out there is not robust enough or high quality enough to drive treatment decisions. I think that we have to use our clinical instincts and our uh, training and on a case-by-case basis to essentially weigh out the risks and benefits of treatment. We have been thinking about patients with infections, you know, before this and have had to make decisions in terms of when to hold and when to move forward. But I think for now, it's going to be a case-by-case benefit. But for I would imagine for the majority of cases that while they're actively infected, 
most treatment will be held until they recover. So I think the TerraVault registry would uh, probably be beneficial in telling us how to maneuver these patients if they develop the infection. And I think it will be an important registry that is being developed by the Italians and the Americans combined. 100%. I think right now we're really operating in an in information-free zone, which I think definitely makes us as clinicians uncomfortable. But I think it also really challenges us to use our, our clinical skill set and our clinical acumen to think about each individual case and deliver the, the best care possible. So let's jump back to the infection itself. There is no definitive treatment as of yet for COVID-19, but yesterday we heard that some of the data from the trial has shown that there is benefit of remdesivir in the treatment of COVID-19. The definitive uh, control trial has not yet been reported. Do you think it should be used or what are your thoughts on it? So I think at this time, we have to you know, go back to our, our principles, which are using evidence to drive our care and our clinical decisions. And I think for the time being, it's very hopeful and it's exciting, but I encourage whenever possible for providers to enroll their patients on clinical trials so that we can study and give this medication as safely as possible. Gilead is distributing the medication for compassionate use, but I think that's mainly in the setting of critical illness and in patients who really are not doing well and we want to give them everything that we have possible. But for our other patients, the ones that are out of the hospital who are who are stable, I think for now, the safest thing and the most appropriate thing is to try to enroll them on a trial whenever possible. Great. I think that we'll have to wait for the vaccine, but the vaccine is probably not going to be there till either uh, early winter or the next year. So I think that will be the key for preventing these infections in the future. Now, let's go towards uh, coming out of this uh, COVID environment, as we are seeing, and we heard yesterday that areas will be opened up in the near future. So what do you think of testing during that period? So I think it's testing is going to be critical, especially for our population. I think it's going to be important for cancer centers and community centers to work with their public health department and their you know, larger hospital systems that they're affiliated with to figure out a plan for testing and how to expand it to patients who may not have been meeting the criteria previously. So for example, we may be posed to screen more frequently our cancer patients who are coming into clinics and receiving treatment. At this time, you know, that's we're not there yet, but as we can start to, you know, open up the economy and start to loosen social distancing, I think we may have to, you know, think ahead and anticipate how are we going to try to identify our at-risk cancer patients. I agree with you, but I think that uh, it'll be important to have widespread testing available. Oh, 100%. For patients who need testing, or for uh, people who want testing and as a measure of surveillance. And in addition, I think the serological test, which was just approved this week to test for antibodies, should be used to see whether there is prior infection with COVID 
especially in our healthcare workers who should probably be tested every week to see whether there is presence of immunity until we have the vaccine or a definitive treatment for this. I agree 100%. And I think there's still a lot to be learned. So I think as this strategy is adopted and we have modified the treatment of our patients with cancer, especially lung cancer, and this tragedy has been like no other. Some people have made comparisons to the 9-11, for instance. And at that point in time, many people saw the sacrifices made by first responders and other volunteers. And there was increased enrollment in police and fire academics. Do you think people will react the same way after the COVID-19 pandemic? Will there be a national reaction to enter nursing, medical, and other healthcare fields? I wouldn't be surprised. I think when some type of catastrophe happens like this, maybe a pandemic or 9-11, that it really shines light on the careers where people serve and help others. And I definitely wouldn't be surprised if it inspires people to go into medicine. But at the same time, I think this pandemic has also shown a light onto other careers that have otherwise you know, not received the attention before things, you know, careers such as epidemiology, public health. Um, again, I think it shines light onto our first responders and other critical serving fields such as teaching and social work. And what I really hope is that our global response to this is a calling to help and the idea that we're all interconnected and need to do our part to contribute and move us all forward and heal from this and that our next generation looks for whatever career that calls them that aligns to their unique skill set that can contribute and help us to learn and move forward after this, whether it's medicine or nursing or science or public service, whatever it may be. Aaron, that was great. We are nearing the end. Given all the research and reviews you have done, what gives you hope for our future? I think, you know, the biggest thing that has given me hope for the future is just the global response from the medical community. I think this pandemic has inspired a tremendous amount of innovation. I think we have crammed 10 years of growth into two months in terms of how we deliver care. I think it has challenged us in terms of thinking about you know, what we do on a day-to-day basis and you know, what the evidence that is there to guide it and where we can be creative to change things to keep our patients safe, but still be aggressive and appropriate for treating their cancer. Also, I think we have seen the medical leadership just collaborate on a level that I really have never seen before. I think, you know, watching how Italy and China and, you know, West Coast and New York have gone above and beyond to share their experiences, share what they've learned, to you know, reach out actively to help prepare the rest of the medical community so that they can be set up to do better than they were able to do, I think is incredibly humbling and inspiring. And just this global commitment to deliver high quality care no matter what. And I've watched my my mentors and the faculty here and I'm sure everywhere really 
on a very short notice, turn their clinics upside down and push themselves to think differently and be creative and continue to give their patients everything that they have. And if that doesn't give you hope, I, I don't know what else could. Very good. Excellent. I think that in addition, I'll give you one more positive aspect of this. As the world scrambles to contain this infection with COVID-19, all the activities have actually come to a standstill. But this has led to marked reduction in air pollutions. From my country, residents from North India have said that they are seeing the Himalayan range for the first time in decades. This could, in fact, help solve our climate riddles that we have been uh, searching for. So I think uh, this has been a great conversation with you, and I thank you for being with us today and wish you all the best in your career ahead. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. This has been quite an honor. It has been a pleasure. You take care. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.